there uh, a pastor also uh, preaching through the book of Revelation. And um, in that particular chapter, I forget which one, he was going through verses 1 through 3. Uh, so uh, we're going through verses 1 through 17. Um, so that means that um, if you're here to uh, hear a lecture on, you know, the, the seventh chapter in the book of Revelation, and you expect for us to go into all the possible intricacies that uh, one can come up with and discuss and debate, uh, you are at the wrong place. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, th there's time for that. But this is a preaching time. And so preaching is not teaching. Teaching is involved in preaching, but teaching as such is not preaching in my opinion. Teaching is the communication of information with the purpose of persuasion, possibly, but preaching is the proclamation of a message that we ought to take to heart. And um, given the fact that we have about 30 minutes to do this, typically, um, it's going to mean that we are ordering the message around the theme, the saints are safe and secure in God's presence, the saints sealed, the saints' testimony, and the saints' future. I'm going to organize the message um, in this sermon around these three thoughts and, and, and themes, uh, sub-themes that we find in this text. Well, my first question for all of us this morning, uh, based on what we have read, uh, is... Um, you know, what we've read in terms of what we see taking place in, in heaven, where uh, all these creatures, and not just in this chapter, but leading up to this chapter, we see again and again how the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the saints in the presence of God, they're bowing down, they're worshiping, they're adoring. Um, uh, they are doing that in complete um, submission uh, to the Lord in whose presence they are. My question is, how committed is the church in America today to serving Christ under his rule and reign? Because that, that is really expressed in this posture that we find of those who are worshiping God in heaven. And if we say that we are Christians, we better mean business about the fact that we are saying, in effect, when we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are yours. We belong to you. We are soldiers of yours, if you will. I don't want to make it too militant here, but uh, you know what I mean. Take up your cross, suffer, endure, persevere, because that is our calling. And it means that we have a commitment of submission to the sovereign, complete lordship of Jesus Christ, our King, no matter what come our way. And I challenge ourselves, I challenge the church in today's time, are we as committed, are we as dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ as we should be? Um, and uh, I will let you answer that question for yourselves, whether you apply it broadly to the church in which, uh, uh, here in America, um, but also maybe to your own life and my own life as well. Uh, am I fully dedicated? Is every portion and parcel of my heart, my will, my affections, devoted, committed uh, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, um, 
that is a challenge that this picture presents to us. But the first thing that we want to uh, look at is what is basically found in verses 1 through 8, the saints that are sealed and numbered. We see in this passage that there are four angels. They're not identified for us, but there are four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. That last part I found very striking. Maybe you noted it as well. Why would it mention the trees? Well, um, there are so many questions that we can ask the text, and uh, sometimes we have to be careful that we don't um, uh, dogmatize on things that are you know, not totally clear. But having lived in a place that is called California, where from Bakersfield all the way up to Reading, about 400, 500 miles of fruit trees, uh, trees that bear nuts, um, I associated this with that, that that represents life. It represents what you and I need, fruit and nuts, uh, we can go beyond that, of course, in, in other areas. But we are human beings who are in need of, of, of provision that God provides. And so perhaps it is possible that in this very acute moment where there is the, about the unleashing of God's global um, uh, disciplining uh, judgments on the earth prior to the very end of the day when Jesus comes again, um, that the Lord is saying to those in charge, he has, he, has given, he has placed them in charge, these four angels, hold back. And when you read, and you read the Greek language here, the words that are used, it almost looks as if the, the, the angels are, are just holding on to something because that wind is just very forceful and it's, it's sort of coming their way and they have to hold it back. And so this is, uh, this is not a relaxed moment in the heavens. Uh, here we see these four angels who have been given authority to do this uh, destruction on the earth, but they are holding that back for the moment. Because chapter 7 is what is called an interlude. Um, when you go to chapter 8, then we read, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and, um, and then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets that were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much uh, incense to offer uh, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And all that, that follows there. But in chapter 7, we have an interlude. It's like the pause button has been pushed uh, it's going to happen, but just not yet, because what needs to happen? There are these 144,000 uh, servants, they're called uh, in the text, and they need to be sealed. A moment ago, I introduced my remarks that we are not at a lecture or a Bible study about this topic where you can ask all kinds of detailed questions. Uh, but one of the things that you obviously encounter in reading the commentaries is what does the 144,000 refer to? And, it, uh, and the answer is all based on your theological, eschatological uh, position. Eschatological meaning the doctrine of the last things or uh, last things, 
It depends on what your position is, if you have one. Um, but that's a reminder as well. We have to be careful when we read God's Word that we do not superimpose upon the text a preconceived notion we have. Um, and that is particularly acute with this whole doctrine of eschatology. When you have a certain perspective, whether it's this one, that one, or the other one, and those are the spectacles with which you see that text, you already have ahead of time made up your mind about what you expect to find in that text, right? I think I'm right. Just agree. Amen. <laughs> so the 144,000, who are they? Um, if you go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's a sect. It's not even a Christian church, but you know, they have their perspective. And I suppose the Mormons have their perspective. And I don't know about the Catholic Church so much, um, but we have our brothers and sisters in the evangelical community and their views. Um, but the 144,000 um, is, of course, a number. Right, and numbers feature prominently in the book of Revelation, um, and that is the primary lesson um, that we need to start with. When you look at the text of Revelation, you need to be um, you need to we need to remind ourselves that numbers are symbols that represent a spiritual reality or a truth, and so the twelve tribes are listed here. And by the way, they're listed in an unusual manner. Um, if it were a Bible study, I'd say, uh, anybody out there, why? I'll give the answer. Dan is missing. There are about 20 listings of the 12 tribes uh, that you can find in the scriptures. And 18 are very consistent. And two of them, this one included, are not and uh, the strange part is that Dan is missing. I don't want to make too much of that uh, comment here, but Dan is seen as perhaps having disqualified himself uh, by virtue of his idolatrous behavior um, that we can um, uh, find uh, referenced uh, in, in other parts of uh, in, in the Old Testament in particular. Um, Let's see where, uh, yeah, so uh, Judges 18.30 and 1 Kings 12.19. Uh, um, but the 12 tribes, of course, represented God's people in the Old Testament. Um, and if these 12 are mentioned now in the New Testament covenant, uh, in the context of Christ speaking to his church, the Christian church, we have to immediately say, Number one, it's strange that this is not a regular listing of the tribes. And number two, this is a symbolic number that reflects and represents a totality. 144,000, 12 times 12,000 12 12, uh, suggests that it represents all God's people and that none are missing. And so before the judgments can come and before the end of time in effect comes when Jesus returns, Prior to that, the, the intensification of the, of the judgments and the sufferings that are pl placed upon this world, that there are these 144,000 that need to be sealed, it says. And they need to be sealed so that they are clearly identifiable. They are placed uh, with a seal upon their heads. 
Um, and so my understanding is that as this is a book that speaks to the hope that the Christian church has, that um, the 144,000 are not just Jews. Uh, it is not speaking about the rapture and then subsequent what happens uh, to these 144 subsequent to that rapture as being uh, the elect from among the Jews and so forth. I see it as representing, symbolically representing, the entire Christian church and God's people who are all passing through God's disciplines that have happened throughout the ages, frankly. If you were to talk to Paul himself, um, you know, what was life like? Um, you know, persecution was serious. Persecution was uh, ongoing. It was sometimes intermittent, but it was serious. People lost their lives in the early church. That's why we call some of the early church fathers martyrs, Justin Martyr, for example. In the Middle Ages, God's people suffered sometimes very intensely during the time of the Reformation. Uh, whether it's uh, the Reformed folk or the Anabaptists, for that matter, they suffered and they gave their lives for what they believed to be God's pure truth. Um, but there is that intensification that towards the end of time, uh, there will be that unleashing of the judgments. And for that, God's people uh, need to be prepared. And that is done by way of having them identified uh, as God's people. What this made me think of is an Old Testament illusion, perhaps you could call it. Um, in the Old Testament, we know that, um, that the night of the Passover, when the angel of death is going to come over Egypt and he's going to uh, take away the firstborn, the male firstborns of families, that if he finds blood placed on the doorframe of a home, then he will pass over that home and they'll be safe. But those who do not have that, including in the Jewish community, if there were those who said, oh, I, you know, Moses and all his uh, you know, talk about this, he's way too worried and so forth. If there was no blood, that home would be afflicted by the angel of death. Um, is it possible that we can just see here that sense in which God places his emblem of identity, of property, of ownership over his church, over you and me. Because in Christ, we are set apart. And baptism, of course, is a beautiful symbol of that. A very prominent symbol of that. That we are forever his. God places his claim of ownership on him or her who are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so these who are to be um, uh, 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 these 144,000, they are sealed um, for the purpose of the judgment day that is coming and the judgment day itself preceded by the judgments that are preliminary in that sense for that great and final day when the judgment takes place. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. I know I'm not satisfying all of you about all the things that you want to ask me about. I will run out of this and go to my car and go home. Uh, then, of course, you have my email and uh, text and so forth. But, uh, no, you can ask me whatever you want, but uh, uh, whether I get the question right is uh, something to be seen. But uh, I believe that when you take the text at its... Uh, um, yeah, Calvin used to talk about the census plane here, the, the plain sense of the text.
what, what is the intent of the original author? What does he convey in this text for us to take hold of? And it just seems then that when all is said and done, but the symbols and the angels and the what have you, uh, that there is that sense, that clear sense, that the people of God, they are the property of God, they belong to God, because the Lamb has shed His blood for us. And so there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not even God's judgments that will fall upon the earth. And while the martyrs, um, you know, the people of God who go through the ages are um, uh, spared from it in a sense, the text does not tell us at all that, first of all, every person is a martyr. And it also doesn't say that because you are sealed, um, the world will experience pain and hardship, but you will not. I think that is a message that needs to be conveyed today very clearly. Um, I think that this doctrine of the rapture, for example, is one that I have a difficulty with because the rest of Scripture gives me no indication. It gives me no encouragement to think that just because we are God's people, we will not suffer. We do suffer. The moment you're born, you suffer. When the child is born and the doctor takes that child in his hands and in the olden days they would put them upside down, hold them by the leg and give him a spank on the bottom. So he starts breathing. That's how we're born into this world. We suffer. There's no indication in God's word that because we're Christians, we're not going to suffer because our Savior suffered. And so will we. And so will we till the end of time. But that doesn't mean that that colors our outlook on our life as Christians in this world. We don't become depressed because we have to take up our crosses. To take up our cross means that you're blessed. It means that God has set you aside. He has placed his ownership on you. Because the rest of the world are not taking up their cross in Christ and for Christ and his glory. And they're lost. They're lost. They're in a state of, of lostness. And uh, their unbelief is only a precursor to the expression of unbelief to the nth degree that they will voice in hell. Because what do you think when you're in hell? What you will be doing? Will you be reciting Psalm 23? Will you say the Lord's Prayer? Will you say, oh Lord, forgive me? Well, maybe, I don't know. But I do think that now is the time to believe. Now is the time to say those 144, I want to be among them. I want to be sealed as they are sealed so that when I go through life and God brings into my life whatever he wishes, I know I'm safe. Because I am standing before the throne in white robes and that color of white that righteousness, that perfection, it's also a symbol of victory and conquest. That's not because I lay down my life. I shed blood, literally or so, figuratively. It is associated with the blood of the one and only, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I stand righteous before God someday. And that is the testimony that we have in verses 9 through 12. We have that testimony. In white robes we stand before God. We have palm branches in our hand. That is also that, that tribute that in ancient 
times people brought to a sovereign, to a general perhaps, returning from the battlefield and bringing with him all the people that they had enslaved and, 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 and tribute, um, uh, spoil of war that they brought home uh, to present to the emperor and so forth. Uh, people were waving and, and, and saluting all those people that came through in that parade. Uh, we stand with them in heaven with our palm branches of victory because we are on the winning side. And it's so important for us to remember that we are on the winning side uh, because we, we can easily get frustrated. We can easily become depressed. We can easily say, Lord, um, you know, this or that. Um, you can look at your own family life sometimes and you become discouraged. And you say, how can there be a solution to this or that problem? Um, but we have our victory in Christ Jesus uh, because he laid down his life for you. Just imagine for you and me that the Lord of glory laid down his life for sinners like us, like we are, so that we can someday stand and bow down before the Lord. We can stand in white robes of righteousness, not our own righteousness, but that which is given us. Uh, it is Christ's righteousness and we can live a life, a full life in the new heavens and the earth. We'll live a very full life um, of praise and adoration to the living God. We will bow down with complete devotion and complete commitment. And again, I reiterate, let that be seen in your life today. If you need to repent of something, if you need to change something, if you need to turn away from sin and go the God way instead, uh, if you are outwardly a good Christian, you're church going, you do your part, but in your heart there's indifference, there's a callousness, there's a coldness, there's a sense of, you know, God must be happy with me, but, uh, you know, I'm doing my own thing. Uh, think again. Because there is a time when we stand before him. And what if he says to you, who are you? I don't know you. Away. Away. Forever. That's a real possibility for Christians as well. How committed to Jesus Christ are you? How fully do you comprehend and understand that saying that you believe in Jesus Christ, you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, has that B part to it? The A part we get and understand really quickly through the operation of the Holy Spirit, regenerating us, renewing us. We understand that we're sinners, we're guilty sinners, and the blood of Jesus tells us you're forgiven through faith in Christ. But the B part is what, what, what shows it, what demonstrates it. And the B part is the Christian life. Gospel and law, law and gospel, however you want to put that. But the two go together in the Christian life, in the life of sanctification. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Sometimes in our circles, we forget about that. It's all about the A part. 
and the other part gets sort of given less attention. But it has always been seen very clearly in the earliest generation of reformers that justification and sanctification were thought of as if they were one word. Because in subsequent generations, when we were, I'm talking now to my students in Riga, Latvia, uh, when we are seeing in subsequent years following the earliest time of the Reformation, the Reformation was forced to defend itself against the Roman Catholic Church on the one hand and also the Lutheran Church on the other. And so it gave a whole wealth of literature in the Reformation churches about our understanding, more technical understanding, detailed, precise understanding of the doctrines of salvation. And so that led then to the distinction that was made more and more between justification and sanctification. But in the original moments, that was seen as one. And so if you were asked, are you converted? They were basically asking you, are you regenerate? Are you justified? Has God justified you by faith in Christ? Um, and not so much as the beginning of the process of conversion that you and I typically think about. If somebody asks you, are you converted? Many of you or some of you will say, yes. I gave my life to Jesus January 1, 1973. In the olden days, the reformers anyway, kept that together because the concentration of focus was more in God than the sinner responding to the gospel. I find that interesting. Um, and I hope my students in Latvia will think the same thing. Um, so my final point is number uh, three, the saint's future. What a blessing awaits us. Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged today? I was discouraged last week for reasons I won't share. And that's just an experience that we all have. From time to time, you go through life following Jesus, taking up your cross. And you say, Lord, what's going on? What wonderful words are we given today? What wonderful words of assurance. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We already share in the victory of Christ. We are conquerors, the Bible tells us. And, um, and uh, we, have, uh, we have our sins forgiven. Indeed, we have washed in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, then when we think of ourselves as those standing before the throne and those who serve Him day and night, um, they are promised, and we are promised, I would say rather uh, uh, frankly, that there comes that, that time in, 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 in the world, in the world to come, where it is fully made true, there shall, they, shall know, they shall hunger no more. Uh, that can be understood as a spiritual hunger. I suppose it can be a physical hunger, of course. But they shall hunger no more, as we do on this side of glory. There will be no more thirst, as we do experience on this side of glory. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
what a future we have. So many things the Lord, the Lord who sits on the throne, has um, given as tasks to perform by the four angels, as they are mentioned in our text, or the four living creatures, or the 24 elders, uh, several of those in the, in the chapters as they uh, open up to us uh, are interacting with, with uh, John in the vision. Um, uh, so so, so they, they are given all kinds of tasks to perform. But isn't it interesting that the Lord saves this task for himself, that he will wipe away every tear? It just occurred to me the other day. I find that striking. Such a simple task to take a tissue and wipe a child's tears from their face. From our faces. The father doesn't give that to an angel to do. He does it himself. It shows us the intimacy of love of the father's heart toward all the elect. All the saints who have ever lived and who live today and who will live yet in days to come should the Lord tarry. We have a magnificent future awaiting us because we look for that day, of course, we yearn for it. But it is a guaranteed success that when we place our trust in the promises of God, he will prove himself true. And that is not only true for this matter of someday standing in the presence of God, but it is also true for today. And if we have a need, if we have a situation that we need the grace of God to lift burdens then we need to have that confident, assured belief in God's goodness, His favor, His mercy, that we will be given exactly what we need. He will give us no more than we can bear. The Lord will see us through. And from the perspective of eternity, we can think of Paul's wonderful words in 2 Corinthians 4.17, where it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. So misery is never meaningless. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It can't get any better than that. The Lord will hold on to you. The Lord will supervise your life. He will give you no more than you can bear. And so with that said, let us be reassured that as the church of Jesus Christ in this world, we are definitely safe. We are secure, not in our own strength, not in what we have, possess, or hope to accomplish but we are safe and secure through the Lamb of God who intercedes before the Father's throne on our behalf every moment, every day. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of comfort that you have given as a message of the book of Revelation to your people. There are certainly also warnings in it for us, Lord, and we pray that we would not skip them. Uh, pass over them lightly. Uh, Lord, may we take the whole counsel of God that we find in this book um, also seriously uh, to live by uh, its instruction 
on a day-to-day basis. Heavenly Father, will you then give us the strength to continue to walk with you and follow you, knowing that your strength, the grace, the strength of your grace is all sufficient. We pray this in your holy name, in Jesus' name, amen.